My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, you guys, to another episode of All the Hard Things. Um, I'm coming off of a super empowering chat with Robin Stern. Um, super excited to have her here to talk to you guys about BDD, body dysmorphic disorder. I know I have so many questions that I'm so excited to dig into, and I can't wait to share it with all of you. Um, so we're going to go over all things BDD today. Um, it is an obsessive compulsive related condition, um, but there's a lot that we don't know about BDD. I think there's a statistic that said like, for as little as we know about OCD, like we know even significantly less about BDD, even though it's like way, is it way more common? Like, what is that statistic about? So the statistic right now is saying that it's about two to 3% of the population have BDD, which is actually more than OCD. But we, I would really venture to say that it's probably underrepresented because I think a lot of people, especially with BDD, are not presenting in a psychiatrist or therapist's office because they see it as appearance issues. So they're more, more likely to go to a dermatologist, a plastic surgeon, and look for cosmetic procedures. But for whatever reason, and the number is lower for OCD, there tends to be more research and information and a little bit more accessibility with OCD than BDD. Right. So even though we're still having some stuff where we need to go deeper within the OCD research, uh, BDD is even less. So they've even used the number that we're 20 years behind OCD, which is just incredible to hear that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I remember hearing that from one of your IOCDF talks virtually from this past weekend. So, or a couple of weekend, weekends ago, it was amazing. Um, so Robin, you know, so much, you were like one of the go-tos when it comes to BDD. Um, so I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I would love for you to start out first with just telling us a little bit about your, your background, your history, kind of how you got interested in this uh, particular niche and, um, yeah, talk to us a little bit about what BDD is, um, specifically maybe like you know, how it's different from just regular everyday kind of body image concerns and, and self-esteem issues. Absolutely. So um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I practice in New York, California, New Jersey, and Florida. I have always been interested in the helping profession. I myself have body dysmorphic disorder. I am 42 years old and was diagnosed 20 years ago. Body dysmorphic disorder, according to the DSM-5, is when a person perceives a flaw, it can be, it's usually minor or non-existent, and no one else sees them, but it causes debilitating um, concerns for the person who has it. It causes an interruption in their functioning, 
And the similarity between OCD and BDD is that the compulsive behaviors that come along with the intrusive thoughts about their appearance concern. And I think the big thing these days is there's so much talk about body dysmorphia. And I love that term and, and not like that term. I have really tried to push this term out of um, the vocabulary, but it was something that has kind of the media has taken off on. And so I just wanted to take a moment to say like, where does body dysmorphic disorder kind of start and where does just somebody with body image concerns or even this media coin term body dysmorphia like fall into play when we're looking at somebody that meets the diagnostic criteria for bdd we're looking for somebody that has a major um interruption of functioning due to their concern and appearance and it's not just not liking what they look like you, you often hear with people and even myself, as, as somebody who struggled with BDD, it was essentially around my skin. And it was like, I felt like I was a pimple. I felt like I was disgusting and that I didn't deserve to have a boyfriend. I shouldn't have friends. I shouldn't leave my house. I shouldn't function because I was inherently different from other people. So you see people with BDD having these very faulty core beliefs about themselves and it really impacts their ability to function. It's devastating. It um, really is just such a disruptor in life. It affects relationships, both intimate and platonic, family relationships, ability to function at school, at work. And when you then deal with someone with more body image concerns, they may see something altered, right? So they may not see, like somebody could say, I don't like how I look today. Like I have a breakout and another person can objectively say, like, I don't see what you see. And that is a similar thing to BDD, but the person with a body image concern, it's not stopping their day. It's not making them feel ultimately defective to the core of their being. And that is the difference. And I think when we see this term body dysmorphia, it could there be people that meet the true criteria within the BDD world? Yes. But I think sometimes it's overused. And there was an article um, with a celebrity talking about an experience where a meme was made of her on Family Guy. And it really led her, her I think it was Chloe Morris, it led her to feel like she couldn't leave her house and she felt deformed. And she used the word body dysmorphia, which was fine. The only place she lost me was when she said everybody has it. And I was like, ooh, that was a great article until you just went there. And that should have been edited out because no, everybody does not have it. Do body image concerns affect a lot of people? Absolutely. But they don't meet diagnostic criteria for BDD and it doesn't interrupt the functioning the way we do see it with BDD. So how I got into this was obviously having the diagnosis myself, really struggling with it, really finding, you would have asked me 15 years ago, would I ever be in this situation? Would I treat it? Would I ever speak about it? Absolutely not cornerstone feelings of feeling shame and defective would leave someone to not want to talk about it. But as I just continued to kind of explore myself and explore this, I realized like I wanted to be a voice for a disorder that still was so misunderstood. And if one person could take something from what I can share personally, and then clinically be able to help people, then I am doing something that I wish would have been done for me. And so it's truly something I'm super passionate about. It's something that I feel like we still need to know so much about. But it's something that I feel like we need to unpack and uncover. And it's often a diagnosis that is so shameful that you don't really hear 
people with lived experience really speaking to the way that I speak with it. There are some of my colleagues that will, but it, a lot of people that could speak about it choose not to because it's so painful, it's so shameful, and they don't want to put their face to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the word that I most often hear associated with BDD is defective. Like that's such a strong word, but it feels like it kind of fits perfectly with a kind of a description of like what that feels like for somebody. Um, and speaking of what it feels like for somebody, like if somebody's out there and, you know, maybe they thought that they just had like poor self-image or poor self-esteem, um, what are some like actual representations like behaviorally that someone might exhibit? Um, I know for instance, like in previous talks I've seen of you, we talk about like camouflaging, right? Like use of makeup and like body checking and so on and so forth. Um, So what are some other like kind of keystones um, that you see people really struggling with when it comes to BDD? I think, you know, especially like in a social realm, if all of a sudden, like you have friends and you start to withdraw socially. And so all of a sudden you start to isolate more and decide like, I don't want to go out because I don't like how I look. And that was definitely me. It was definitely that type of person of like, even when I got the diagnosis, I was like, I can stop pretending now. I have this diagnosis of BDD. I don't have to put myself out there anymore. Let me kind of go through treatment. I don't want to be uncomfortable. So if you start to notice that you're withdrawing from social interactions or you're deciding, you start to have this thought process, let's say, only when this changes about my physical appearance, then I'll do this then that has to start to hit you. Because guess what? We may not love what we look like and people with body image may not love what they look like, but you don't often see that they stop doing or will say only when this changes, will I do X, Y, and Z. So definitely like changes of behavior withdrawing. Um, Also, you know, doing a lot of obsessive checking. So it could be Googling a lot. You know, with social media, there's a lot of people following certain, you know, Instagram sites, like somebody with BDD concerns about their skin shouldn't be following an acne positive because guess what? Their issue really isn't about their skin. Their distortion makes them feel that way. So, you know, it could be that if they're spending a lot of time on social media, if they're comparing themselves, if they're finding it, you know, that all of a sudden the things that they used to be able to do, they're not able to do anymore. And ultimately just this disruption in functioning that they all of a sudden feel like, they start to hear in their head, like, when I change what I look like, I will be this. I mean, I've seen clients that have literally said, when I get this procedure, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be this whole other person. I'm only going to start to date when my skin gets better. And it's like, okay, that's not somebody. Those are kind of big hallmarks of when you're like, okay, this might be more than something with body image. Like this may actually be something that we have to look at. Definitely seeing a lot of compulsion. So mirror checking is tremendous, like feeling this need to constantly, but even hearing certain words, like when people start to say, I feel different, I feel defective. Again, it's like these nuances that you don't see so much with someone with body image issues. Usually people with body image, they don't like it. They don't essentially feel, I mean, I felt defective to the core, like to the core. Like it was just like, I felt like I was just this different human being and you don't, body image doesn't essentially make you go to that extreme. And I think when you start to hear certain words like defective, different, ugly, monster, gross, repulsive, then you're just like, you're going into probably BDD territory, especially if you then start to have that coupled with this disruption of functioning. So I think all of that is going to give more of a bigger picture that maybe we're not just dealing with something like body image. We're dealing with something more 
probably related to getting an assessment for body dysmorphic disorder. Yeah, there's, it seems like there's so much overlap, right? Like you're using the term compulsion and it seems like very obsessive and perseverative in that way, like to really truly be perseverating and just like continuing to have like this mental and physical attention put on this defect or, you know, defects. Um, And I know that they're also separate, right? Like I know that we can't just use exposure and response prevention for BDD. Um, So there are things that also make them separate. So if you could talk about some of the similarities and the overlap between OCD and BDD and then how BDD actually does deviate and why we kind of need something different above and beyond just the traditional exposure and response prevention. Absolutely. So Obviously, you know, in the DSM-5 right now, we see that BDD is within the OCD spectrum disorder. So based on the diagnostic criteria, it falls within that. We do know that CBT ERP is helpful for BDD in the fact that there is very similar to OCD, there's a lot of compulsive behaviors. You know, BDD tends to have very similar, whereas like OCD may have like a variety of compulsions. BDD has very kind of, you'll go across the board to most clients and they'll have very similar compulsive behaviors like mirror checking, um, you know, Googling, comparing themselves to other people, taking photos, going for cosmetic consultations, getting procedures done, wanting to get procedures done, a lot of ruminating um, about how they look, a lot of mind reading about what the other person is thinking about them. So all those things from a behavioral perspective would be helpful to decrease. Because remember, just like with an OCD, the thoughts will only go down when the behaviors decrease. The difference is, is that it's with body dysmorphic disorder, it's also about really feeling defective to the core of who you are. And there's a lot of faulty beliefs. And what we've seen, and the research is not all there now, is that about 80% of people with BDD have had some trauma in their childhood. So there's now this biological component that brings out BDD, but there's also most people have had a trauma component, which we don't always see with OCD at all. And in and traditional OCD therapy, a lot of OCD therapists don't even look at the whole picture. They'll essentially just see the, you know, the compulsions and the intrusive thoughts and work there and don't necessarily go back into childhood experiences to unpack what's going on. I'm going to say for myself, I had trauma growing up. And I use that word lightly because I think now we can kind of say it's trauma. I would say 15, 20 years ago, trauma was mostly closely associated with being exposed to like war crime and all that stuff. And, or like a very, you know, significant, like a a shooting experience or something like that or a death. But I was bullied for four years about my appearance. And there was a lot of importance of appearance within my family. So there was this like whole thing that guess what was not actually looked at during my treatment. And it was almost like, Robin, what happened to you there has nothing to do with here. Now I wanna be clear. I definitely had the biological predisposition because we know there's neurological components to BDD. But I think what we see in a major difference is the trauma piece that usually comes along with BDD, which is very important to unpack to truly get to a stronger place of recovery. What we see with people with OCD is that when they stop doing the compulsions, they really get back to a baseline of functioning where they get their life back. What we see with people with BDD is they do get back. I did essentially live but I had a lot of trouble with interpersonal relationships and with other things, because guess what? I still felt defective. So yes, I stopped checking the mirror. Yes, I reduced all my behaviors, but all those 
uh, distorted beliefs and all those things that were related to early childhood traumas were never unpacked and looked at because BDD was essentially still looked at almost, they never said it, but essentially like appearance related OCD. And that was the treatment because right now the research is only showing treatment to be CBT ERP. And so, you know, research is very important and I don't want to take away the importance of using CBT ERP. It is hundred percent necessary, but I do believe we have to go deeper. And I think it's hard. I think we as therapists, clinicians, and researchers want to see the evidence. And I think when we go in in a more in-depth approach, it's very hard for it to be measurable. And so it's still, you know, so, so I know personally as a clinician, I, I look at the whole person and that's essentially the only way that I can treat. I cannot just treat where initially I thought, okay, I'm just treating CBT or P because I also do treat OCD and I treat body focused repetitive behaviors. And I use the comb B model and habit reversal with BDD. You, it's not a one size fits all thing. And I can only go back to personal experience. So again, I think that that's where there's, there's definitely a lot of similarities. There's often differences. And I think we're constantly uncovering that. I think that that's where we're still so far back to realize. And I think in a 15, hopefully in 15 to 20 years, will have a fuller model to treat it that that other clinicians will be able to kind of emulate so that they can feel that they have more tools in their chest to be able to treat people more holistically with BDD. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I totally do agree. Um, Like, it feels like the ERP is just not enough. Like it's kind of getting them back to a place of like functioning, but that there's something else like that we need to, in order to get that person to freedom, we have to resolve something else, which is not necessarily always the case with just OCD, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah, there is definitely something different about it. Um, So when it comes to like the treatment interventions and like the best treatment practices for that, like, what does that look like? Like when it comes to like processing that bullying, for example, or like going back, like, do we talk about like, uh, like internal family systems? Like what, what is that? What, what else kind of is involved in that process above and beyond ERP? Right. And I think it's about finding what works for people. For me, I definitely want to know someone's childhood experience. And this feels so different for me because I got to be honest, you know, I'm 42. I've been in and out of therapy since nine years old and not getting the diagnosis of BDD till I was 22. And I've and never really been in any kind of psychodynamic, and I'm not a psychodynamic therapist, but the notion of anybody asking me about my childhood, right? So it's, it's a little, it has been a little foreign to me to be saying essentially as a BDD therapist to ask these questions. But yet when I've asked these questions about tell me about your childhood, tell me about when appearance became your identity. It's just incredible to see all these things. And then it's like, and then you start to see, oh, wait a second, your thoughts and beliefs about your appearance also affect how your thoughts and beliefs are when you show up at work. Interesting. Those thoughts and beliefs are also about how you enter into relationships. Really interesting. So it's not just about your appearance because we do know with BDD, it's really not about your appearance because the person with BDD can't see themselves accurately. So Right now, we kind of go with a more in-depth psychotherapy approach. I think we can utilize ACT as very helpful. I love value-based. So it's like, okay, because it's hard. It's really hard for BDD sufferers. It's not to say it's not hard for OCD sufferers, but BDD, you know, for some people with OCD, they can kind of remove themselves at times from their thoughts or from situations. You never leave yourself with BDD. It's yourself. It's your core. It's your physical self. Like you don't ever leave it. And so- 
you know, acceptance commitment therapy is definitely something I interweave. I think, yes, looking at the family systems, it's processing through the trauma. And so, you know, in an ideal world, you know, a BDD therapist is a trauma specialist. In some cases, obviously I'm not, I'm trauma informed. So it's really seeing, okay, how significant is the trauma? Do we need to maybe work on the trauma with a trauma therapist coinciding? Um, and really look to see what makes the best sense. I want to be clear. CBT ERP is 1000% necessary. It is, but I always say it's like a given that has to be done, but we still have to go deeper because what tends to happen is even when we finish with the CBT ERP, clients still feel defective. And so I think that leads them to having more relapses. And that's essentially was my story. I mean, I had about four relapses and I could teach CBT ERP in my sleep. And so I never understood why. I didn't understand. I got it. I know I can't do these things, but why am I still falling? And it was because these other things were never looked at. These other things were never tied together. And I didn't really understand it. I also think looking at the four faulty core beliefs are essential and really unpacking them and looking at them and seeing how it's impacting you, you know, and beginning to process through and realize, is this effective? Is this helpful for you to function? And, you know, I think all of those things will help you right now. You know, I think we're all trying to be creative. I don't think we have one universal approach as BDD clinicians on how we expand upon it. I think we kind of use the overall umbrella of a more in-depth psychotherapy approach. And it's, you know, it's really just looking at the whole person and making sure we're hearing their entire story and what they've been through and not necessarily like segmenting it and not necessarily saying, okay, well, this is BDD and this is something else. I remember working with a client and it was like, everything she went through her whole life. I'm like, cause she said to me, I have BDD and I have other things. And I was like, okay, let's go through your timeline. And when I went through her timeline, I'm like, do you see that your BDD behavior is exactly the same throughout everything you just shared with me? And she didn't realize that because usually the traditional approach with BDD is just doing the CBT RP and not looking at how it impacts other facets of your life. And when you look at it, you essentially see you're kind of going through the same lens all the time. And so it's really, really, I would say the most critical thing for anybody treating BDD, please look at the whole picture. Don't just look at the behaviors. Don't just look at the diagnosis. Look at all of the person from birth to now. That is crucial. I really, really can't say it enough. Crucial. All right. So it's been 14 days, you guys, a little bit more than that. And I wanted to give you an update as to how I've been doing and feeling with the Magic Mind Challenge that I've been talking about for these past few episodes. If you don't know, Magic Mind is a matcha-based energy shot with a ton of great ingredients that can help significantly with brain fog and fatigue and so much more. If you listened to some of my previous episodes, you know that I took the 14 Days of Magic Challenge with Mastermind where I took one of these energy shots every day for 14 days, and holy cow, they are just incredible. I have actually replaced my morning cup of coffee with them and don't even take pre-workout before my gym anymore. I used to do both and feel like in hindsight, that probably wasn't the best decision. The energy lasts me for a really long time throughout the day, and I don't have the fatigue and mental fog that I used to after I would crash from my coffee in the afternoon. So if you guys want to try, I totally recommend it. Just head to www.magicmind.co. I'll also link it in the show notes for this episode. They have a ton of ways to save, including if you subscribe, you'll be able to save on your order. Use the code ATHT14 for 40% off your first subscription. Enjoy.
Yeah, I really like the idea of using ACT. Um, I do that sometimes with my you know, clients who struggle with OCD, obviously, and, right. and obviously ERP is necessary. Like even with inference-based CBT coming out, like I get tons of questions about that. I don't understand that one. Maybe that's another I need day. to learn more about it, but like, dude, I don't understand. Like there's never going to be a world to me where you don't push yourself outside of your comfort zone, where you don't reduce your safety behaviors and where you don't reduce avoidance. Like I don't care what you call it, but like in order to get better with these conditions, OCD and BDD in particular, like you're going to have to do those things. You're going to have to resist checking your body in the mirror. You're going to have to right. go out with less camouflage. You're going to have to push yourself outside of your comfort zone. So like do other complimentary things. That's great. But there's going to have to be that element to it. There's no world in my mind that exists where someone could recover and feel great and have long lasting sustainable change. What if they're not doing those things? I don't see that ever happening. So again, I, I it's funny. You just made me realize um, that I haven't done it yet. And that's really bad. I have the manual of, of the inference CBT and I could probably send it to you after somebody sent it to me with BDD. And I really have not read it. It's I have good intentions of doing so, but I essentially says you don't do anything behaviorally. I got to be clear as I'm sitting here with you today, telling you, we need more. There is absolutely no place that you cannot do behavioral work. I yeah. would not be sitting in front of you today. I don't even, and trigger warning, trigger warning. I really would not be here today. Right. If I did not stop those behaviors, I would not have a life. I don't know if I would physically be in this world. I don't know if I would. I can't imagine a person with BDD not stopping those behaviors. Yeah. And so I don't know. I can't speak for how it works with OCD. I don't know enough about it, but I just know when I read the first page, it was essentially like, you don't need to change your behaviors. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand that. And I, think I am not bought in. I am not bought in, but even like, well, I'm going to send you that whole thing. You'll read the first page and you will not be bought in. And it's, it really, it was like, it actually, I'll be honest, felt very minimizing as somebody who struggles with yeah. BDD. I mean, I'm in recovery, yeah. but it essentially said something like, like something is wrong with me that I have these thoughts. And I'm like, oh my God, like, how am I reading this right now? And, and it was just like, again, I have to be clear. I always talk about, we need more than CBT or P. But we need CB, we need the ERP. Like that must be there. Like that is a lifeline. Like, so behavioral work is essential. And so I really want to say if anybody says like, you don't need to do behavioral work for BDD, you need to like go to a different therapist. Yeah. Because that was the only thing that made me like be here today. Mm -hmm. And it stinks, right? Like we don't want it. We would love to like lose the weight without working out. We would love right. to like be able to run the half marathon in a record time without having to train. Like we would love all that. That would be amazing. Right. But you know, that's not going to happen. Like you have to do the hard things and it's good to do the hard things sometimes. I think there's just, I mean, in general, I think ERP is amazing. I think it transfers outside of even the diagnosis because ultimately we're sure. learning to 100%. be comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And so I think essentially like there's just so much benefit to it. And I think you can translate it to other aspects of your life outside totally. of just even the stuff you deal with with your diagnosis. And look, I respect and honor that people want to look for new things. I really do. And I don't want to like debunk that people are using new, like, but like, this is gold standard for a reason. There's a lot of research here, but maybe this is an opportunity where we say, okay, if it doesn't work for some people, like what else to do, but we can't, we can't like deviate 
from research for years that have literally saved people's lives. Like we can't deviate from something that we know works. That doesn't mean we don't add to it, but we don't want to take away something that has changed people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, obviously you are so passionate about it. You do have a background in it. No, I love (laughs) that. Oh my God. Hey, I come with lived experience too. Like I also, you know, I know how well this works and I know you know, obviously nothing is going to be perfect for everybody, but even in those statistics that say like, oh, 40% of people don't respond to ERP. I'm like, bullshit. Like so much of that is probably preventable. If we had good therapists who knew how to recognize like mental compulsions and who weren't feeding into their, you know, reassurance seeking traps and who weren't afraid of their own, you know, clients anxiety. Like if we were actually doing ERP, it probably wouldn't be so like, iffy for people. Um, so I could go on and on about that all day, but I want to hear about your story. I want to hear about like how you, you know, really, you know, you're, you're saying that you had these relapses, like at what point did you kind of like really try to get into this and you really wanted to shift and like make this part of your own advocacy journey and, you know, help other people. Cause it's so inspiring. So this is the first time I've ever publicly said this, but I think it's an important message. Um, I was treated by a very world renowned, I guess, uh, OCD specialist for many different years on and off, Dr. Bruce Hyman, who wor- wrote the OCD workbook. He passed away in 2015. I was I, I was in, essentially in recovery, but I always knew that I had like my wingman, my coach, like he was incredible. Like he whipped me into shape and I always knew I would have him if I ever relapsed. The day he passed away, I walked into my psychiatrist's office, Dr. Fusner, and I said to him, I can't do this anymore. BDD can't be who I am. And I don't have the luxury of any of any more relapses. And I don't have the luxury for this to take me out anymore. Now, let me be clear. Does that mean I'll never have a relapse? No, it changed the way I saw this disorder. I was very relaxed about it. It was very, it took a lot of my life. It I was in and out of different recoveries and had a a lot of beautiful things. I mean, I have two master's degrees. I'm a parent. I have a lot of beautiful things in my life, but I struggled a lot. And I definitely had ups and downs. This is a hard thing to say, but his death gave me life. He always told me that I had the strength within me and he was 100% right. I was never ready to access it. When he passed away, it was a turning point for me to make the decision that I can't do this anymore and that I am not going to give this any power over my life anymore. And that was a major turning point. Again, I was in recovery then, but it took me to a whole different level. There was a sense of like, I wanted his legacy to be something. I was his last client that he worked with. I didn't know he was sick. I was his last client because I was just doing check-ins with him that I was with before he passed away. And I felt for his legacy, like I, I'm going to, I'm going to do something. And then I went to the OCD conference to honor him in 2016. And that was the beginning of where everything changed for me. It was the beginning of my advocacy work. It was the, I always knew I was going to be a BDD therapist, I think around 2010, but it was the beginning of, of, of speaking. I don't know when I made the decision in 2010 that I wanted to be a BDD therapist, if I was going to share my story. But once I made that step into 2015, 16, when he passed away, it was like a game changer. And that was at that point, 
I no longer wanted to be shameful of this disorder. I wanted to give it a face. I wanted to show people that they can thrive, that they can live. And it changed my whole world. And it, it's hard sometimes to say that somebody's death gave you life, but he really did. And, I, and I'll always remember him saying the strength was in, within you. And he was right. I just wasn't ready to go there. I wasn't ready. Um, and I honestly never thought that this, I knew I was always in the helping profession. I just never thought necessarily my own personal journey would be out in the world to see. It's definitely been very vulnerable and has brought up very various things. Like I did a hear my story and I talked about my bullying and all my experience and my BDD and, and, and being housebound and all these various things and just toxic relationships and things that happen. But the truth is people need to hear it who have this disorder. I didn't hear it and I could have used it. And I, I feel like I have this, I have to do that for people because I think they need to see the intricacies of this disorder that it goes beyond, again, appearance concerns. I think if we look it up, it's like you just see it. Oh, I don't like what I look like. But you don't see someone's life being completely shattered. And I had to be vulnerable enough to be like, do I want to go here? And I definitely, I mean, support of my family and, you know, my ex, he didn't necessarily think I was doing the right thing. And he's like, I don't know why you're sharing that. Because guess what? I want to help people. And that's okay. It's okay for me to share and be vulnerable because if it touches one person's life, then it was worth it because yeah. I essentially wish I had that. And that's, that's essentially how I came to where I am today. It was never really, it was not my trajectory. It was not my trajectory to go into advocacy. It was not my trajectory to ever use my story. I always knew I wanted to be a therapist after I became a guidance counselor. That was my trajectory. I definitely knew I wanted to go into the BBB OCD world. I didn't necessarily think I was going to be sharing my own stuff. I thought that my own experience would help me to be a good clinician and give me the insight I needed. Did I ever think that, because I've met a lot of clinicians, OCD, I don't know many BDD clinicians that haven't disclosed, but a lot of OCD clinicians who don't disclose they have it. And again, you only disclose when necessary, right? You don't sit and tell your story for for your clients to listen, but when when it's important to the therapeutic relationship and for to, to help them, you share it. I think, you know, there's some, there's some clinicians that don't feel the need to. I think for me, it was just this kind of like onion peel. It just started to happen, happen. And then all of a sudden it was just like, and even now, if you go back and to listen to hear my story, when I, when I was taped and I heard it, I was like, Ooh, did I really want to share that? Did I really want to go there? Cause no one knew a lot of that stuff. Like it was like raw. Like I've never walked somebody through my trauma, my bullying, my thoughts. And it was like, but you know what? It was, I, and I said it to the, to the director, I said it was cathartic. It was healing. It was therapeutic, but you know what? It needed to be shown. It needed to be shown. And so, I mean, that's kind of essentially what the path was. It was never like, I knew this was going to be me. And I know there's a lot of people who let's say have OC or OCD related disorders and are young. And they're like, I want to be this therapist. That, that was definitely not my trajectory. If you would have asked me 15 years ago, probably even 10 years ago, I wasn't opening my mouth about this. Mm -hmm. So I don't, it was, I think when he passed and just a lot of the strength that I took from that, it just essentially made me feel like this was the journey I was going to go on. Mm -hmm. I love that. And when we're 20 years behind OCD, which isn't far by any means, it's one of the most misdiagnosed and misunderstood conditions. So just to put that into perspective where BDD is like super, super lagging, we need you. We need you and your lived experience. And we need people who can speak about this from the lived perspective, because I don't know, like my story is a little bit backwards, right? Like I 
was always, I always think that I was like an anxious person, like never really resonated with obsessions or compulsions until like hindsight 2020. Um, but yeah, like I see me as a therapist before my OCD got really bad. And I see myself as a therapist, like after my OCD got really bad. And like, I am such a better freaking therapist after my OCD. Like you can't really like understand this, the nuances of these conditions, unless you've been there, because it is so feelings based, right? Like you feel defective. You feel like there's something wrong with you. You feel that guilt and shame. You feel like your intrusive thoughts mean something. You feel so strongly that you need to go back and check that thing. And like, before I had felt that for myself, I remember like, oh my gosh, why can't you just not go in the bathroom and wash your hands? Like, come on. But it's like, oh, now I actually know what that feels like to like want to do something so badly and feel like if you don't like you're going to kill someone. Right. Like we so we need you like we need the field needs us, especially with BDD, because it is so far behind. So like, where the heck do we go from here? Like to catch up, like what what missing links would you like to see being filled? Where do we go from here? So essentially, I mean, and I don't know time wise how that's going to happen. And essentially, you know, as a master's level clinician, you know, research is only, I don't think a lot of master's level clinicians do research. So for me personally, I've definitely grappled with, do I go back to become a psychologist so that I can do research? Cause I actually am super passionate to see this diagnosis to learn more. And I feel like maybe I'll have more, um, you know, behind me if I had that degree and had that ability to like do that. Um, so for, from a personal perspective, that's something I've definitely toyed with. I don't know how realistic it is and, and how soon I could actually do that. I just would like to see more research. I would like to see even within the field itself, you know, even the researchers that do it, I, I want to thank them because I'm here today because of what they have done to understand this, but I would love for them to be a little bit more open-minded about like, let's expand past CBT ERP. Um, and I would like them to hear the clinicians that have BDD who are telling them like, hey, we've all experienced trauma. Hey, all my clients that come to me have a story. Like there's something there. Can we explore that? I think I would love to see that. And I think it's hard. Um, and I think it's, it's it's definitely something that I've spoken to colleagues about. We definitely try to push it. Um, I want to be clear, so grateful for all the stuff that's out there. I just think we need to be open to looking at it from another lens to, to get more, you know, it would be great to get more clinicians that really want to specialize in this and really want to learn about it. And, you know, and essentially for, for OCD clinicians to really understand that this is not appearance related OCD, you can't treat it like it is. If you really don't understand it, you're not doing your client any service by keeping them. Please understand that. Like you're not. And I've seen, I've had a therapist that told me I have appearance related OCD. That was very dismissive. I don't. And then you're missing the mark on who your person is. And so I just would love to see more research. Um, I would love to see more therapists specialize in it, having that passion behind it. Um, and, you know, and again, like just how their, their expertise in OCD, like know where your expertise is. Like, I definitely know where it is. Like, I won't take on something that I don't feel comfortable with. And like, I really think that that's what people should, you know, one, like definitely take the education to learn more. Um, we need to get more involved in, in getting bigger with this, but ultimately, you know, 
we still have a lot to learn about it. And it's, and essentially the researchers have to be willing to look in another direction and not just look at the similarities with OC. They need to start to begin to look at the differences. And I think that's where, where we are right now. We really need to look at those differences because that's where the missing piece is in the treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. And hopefully we get there. Um, yeah. Like I said, I think that it takes people with lived experience to like really drive that like a little bit faster, a little bit more passionately. So I'm so glad that the field has you. I think it's also scary for people because like we do rely on ERP so much and we love the fact that it's so helpful. Like I think it's scary for us to branch out and try to treat something that we don't know, like how to treat it. Right. Like it, you know, we want to do something as clinicians that like we know is going to be effective, like boom, bing, bing, boom. And like to venture out into this other diagnosis is like very scary. Um, but like we'll never be able to get there unless we like venture into that area and try to learn more about it. So um, you know, there are probably so many people out there, like as we wrap up, I want to make sure that people know kind of where to get support. Um, even if the research isn't there, like, I know that you guys are in this little niche, like trying to make as much of a, of a voice as possible and, um, you know, create some supports for people where they can learn more and feel like they're not alone. So where can people go to learn more? Where can people go to find support and where can people go to learn more about you? Absolutely. So obviously the IOCDF has a BDD component compartment. So like you can go on the BD, the BDD website for the IOCF and they have a lot of information there. You can also use their clinic, uh, their clinician directory to find somebody in your local area that treats BDD. But again, I would ask questions. I really would. I would ask questions to really ask like, how do you differentiate treatment between OCD and BDD? And you definitely want to ask certain questions. Um, also the BDD foundation of the UK, even though it's outside the U S has a ton of support, a ton of great information. That's also really good to have. You can find me at my website, which is rlsterntherapy.com or on Instagram at BDD OCD therapist. Awesome. Well, thank you, Robin, so much for being here. You guys, I'll make sure that I put all of that in the show notes, um, so that you guys can find all that information really easily. Thank you again so much for being here. Your expertise is unmatched. I'm so happy to now get to know you and have you in my corner and someone I can go to to learn more about. Um, yeah, you're going to want to keep up with Robin, you guys. She has a lot of good stuff going on. So um, thank you again, Robin. I'm so appreciative of you. And until next time, you guys keep doing all the hard things. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.